Today's podcast is brought to you by Elenco Animal Health and Kelly's Finance. Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill. And our guest on The Grill today is a bloke universally recognised and respected and admired right throughout the beef industry. Let's make welcome Peter Hughes. Peter, such a pleasure to have you on The Grill. Thank you, Kerry. Thank you very much for having me. Peter, you're getting close to 4 million hectares uh, and your cattle number north of 200,000? Uh they would be, Kerry, yes. Very yes, importantly, that's... very importantly, are you in charge of the barbecue at home? <laughs> Kerry, I try and relax at the barbecue. And, and I assume it's Wagyu, it's anything that you're cooking, rare, medium, I assume? It is, it is, Kerry. But mostly in the bush, we, we eat, uh, because we, we, we eat grass-fed beef, but it's well-conditioned, and, and there, there are strains of Wagyu that will marble very well off grass. And it's uh, it's very very good. It sounds delicious. Now, Peter, let's go way way back before any wagyu. Let's start your journey. Your family, yep. your family on the land. Gary, yes, on the mother's side, uh, her grandfather took up saltbush in in eighteen seventy two, and uh, one of his sons left the family and bought Terrawoomba where we are now, and that was my grandfather. Dad came here after the the Second World War, and. Uh, yeah, we've been we've been here at Terrawoomba since uh, nineteen hundred and six. Wow! And like so many mm. sons of graziers uh, in those days when you were growing up, you went to the Southwood School on the Gold Coast. You were in the first fifteen, I understand. And one of my spies tells me you were part of a group of very naughty boys. Peter, is that right? Oh, I don't think I don't think that. I think that would be that would be wrong. But we certainly enjoyed it. We <laughs> we we made the best of it, Gary. I look, <laughs> some of the tales I hear are just fantastic. Look, uh, you didn't bother with any tertiary education or after school. You straight back home and hard work. Well, yes, I went back. I went up into the north, up into the north, and worked up there for a couple of years, uh, and thoroughly enjoyed that as well. I came, I came back down, I came to Terrawoomba in, in about uh, 68 or something, right, something you, somewhere um, about then. You must recall in that dreadful cattle price crash of the 70s, did that impact in your family business? It did very much, Kerry. It was, a, it was, it was amazing. And uh, in 1973, I mean, steers that were making probably $125 in, in, at a store sale, People took those stores and kept them for another two years, and they got about fifty or sixty dollars for them. But the, the amazing thing about the cattle crash then, we were still doing things very simply. I mean, we we didn't have uh, didn't use helicopters or radios or motorbikes, not in this country anyway. And and we just uh, we were able to go back and spend nothing and just live it out. You know, we were walking steers into or bullocks and cows into into Nebo and putting on rail to go to Mackay, only about 150k. It was, uh, yeah, it, it 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 was a a tough time, but we just got on with it and spent no money and uh, worked our way through it. Of course, you know, with the with the dealers, with the bullock fatteners, they bought steers. Certainly, the first time they lost money, but after that, the margins were much the same. It's all about yeah, the margins. Yeah, the margins, Kerry. Yeah, the margins, the margins. The trouble is, yeah, 
and also in the 70s, there were quite a lot of people that wouldn't accept the market and put their bullets back in the paddock. And, of course, they ate, they ate the country out and they had more coming on. So uh, we had a big build-up of numbers and knocked the country around. And uh, Yeah, it was, a, it was an ordinary kite. Like all things, anything goes wrong, it seems to take about four years to clear, and that was what it was. By by '79, the market was picking up again, and it was really quite buoyant through the the early '80s. Yes, uh, new breeds were coming into the industry around about that time, and uh, what many breeds, of course, didn't last. But what was your mainstay breed through the '70s and into the '80s? Oh, we had Brahmin cattle. Prior to that, uh, we started we started using Brahmin cattle back in the mid fifties, and probably dawdled along for for the next ten years, and then uh, we crossed over to, to Brahmin cattle. Like you know, we we had uh, we used a bit of Drought Master and a bit of Santa. We probably we didn't go the full hog, but we certainly had better than half Brahmin right through our herd. Do you remember how many you were turning off in the in the early nineties? Maybe. Yeah, we we had something. You know, we had a herd. We were building up towards twenty thousand with other places. Like if, you know, in the early in the in the eighties, we bought. Dad was quite a. He, he loved the industry, and it, and we bought Wentworth and Fig Tree and Pyramid by the early nineties as a family concern. Yes. But we all uh, we all went our own ways in in uh, ninety two. All right. Now was, it, now, was that about the time that you first heard about Wagyu cattle? How did that come about, the time, the place, and was there any particular person involved? Well, there was. I, I used to travel a bit, camp drafting with, with Wally Ray, and Wally Ray was very, very keen on incre- improving the eating quality of his beef. He was a, a store buyer that used to fatten bullocks and sell bullocks, and uh, he'd, he'd heard about Wagyu cattle and, and put a lot of effort into it. He was one of the first to take genetics across to America or Canada, and then uh, brought the the semen and the and the embryos into Australia. Because we talked about it a lot, and I, you know, I was lucky to be at the right spot at the right time. And we started we started using those crossbred bulls in the early nineties, about ninety two. And uh, again, you know, we we dawdled along for about ten years. Then we decided that. Anything that tastes as good as, as Wagyu couldn't fail. Yes, and uh, where we went. Well, was there one feature of Wagyu apart from the taste uh, taste which stood out for you, or was it the uh, the complete package? Oh well, Kerry, it, it was it was the taste. It was the taste that that caught our attention. And then, but as we as we went along, we found they were very fertile and and very resilient. They're still a boss tourist beast. They're still prone to ticks and. And yeah. the problems that we have in the north, but we found that uh, no, they were they 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 cope very well and very easy to handle too. I understand exactly, exactly, Kerry. But they're still cattle. If yeah. if you don't if you're not a cattle man and you and you don't go about them the right way, they can be as lively as any other cattle. Yeah, they're not twins. No, relative to other breeds, so yeah. I guess the easy thing to say about Wagyu is that they're plain looking. I suppose it's a kind way of uh, <laughs> depicting a Wagyu beast. Oh, I've been around a long time, Kerry. I can remember when we, when the the, the way that the, the old Hereford breeders talked about Brahmin cattle. There's yeah, no that's difference. right. That's true. That's you know, true. They had to. They, they had to. They had to prove themselves, and they did. 
I once asked a beef person at the Ecker that why don't they display Wagyu cattle? There are so many of them. And he said to me straight, they're too ugly. <laughs> and I thought that's a terrible thing to say about a beef, but it might yeah, be right. Yeah, Gary, that's, yeah, we can all, we can, <laughs> we can all, we can all joke about that, but really we're, we're breeding those cattle. Early days, to, Peter. To eat, aren't we? And, yes, and it, exactly. Yes. And it's, it's the bottom line that counts. Follow the money, as they say. Early days, it can't have been easy to, uh, or cheap to access good Wagyu genetics. I guess you had to go overseas, maybe. Well, yeah, plenty, plenty did, and uh, but I was uh, living next door to a, a very prolific Wagyu breeder, and and I bought bought bulls from from Wally at a very reasonable prices. Getting into Wagyu didn't cost me any more than any other breed at that stage, but it's certainly developing along the lines now where it's going to cost a lot if you haven't. Been if you're not already established. So uh, mid to late nineties, you're buying property, expanding your cattle numbers. That big drought that uh, from about 2010 on that must have put the brakes on somewhat. Kerry, it does. It does. We have we have dry times. There's no doubt. But I think you know what you've got to do when you you go into an area. If it's a 10 inch rainfall, 10 12 inch rainfall, you know that every four years you it's not going to rain much at all. And uh, you know, in those low rainfall areas, you can get big areas, but you've got to be very, very frugal about your carrying capacities. If you if you uh, reduce your carrying capacity a bit, you'll sail through most of those dry times. I know there are, like the drought that was around Longreach, you know, you just won't beat that with anything. But but most most dry times, if you're frugal, you'll uh, you'll get through them. And cattle do very well when when it, when there is a bit of feed about. You're listening to Peter Hughes, one of Australia's most respected and admired beef industry leaders, back in a moment. Don't let your cattle suffer the setbacks caused by buffalo fly. Combat buffalo fly with Corral, Patriot and Silence insecticidal ear tags. Providing up to four months of long-lasting fly control. Alanco has you covered with a range of ear tags to suit your rotation program. Contact Alanco and find out how you can win the Buffalo Fly Battle now. Welcome back. You're on the grill with me, Kerry Lonigan, and Peter Hughes. In a recent speech, Peter, you outlined, I think it was four or five points to maximise your chances of success in the northern cattle industry. Could you give us a, a run through again quickly of those four or five points? Yes, Kerry. Yeah, I, I, I believe that. There's about six principles that are very, very simple. Is that you've, you've got to have good water. You know, it's very important that every every beast can get a drink, and particularly the calves. So you've got to be careful with water, and it's got to be good water. The other thing is, is facilities. You've got to have good yards, good facilities. They don't have to be elaborate, but they've got to be very, you know, they work well. You need uh, you need a good team. You need to make it interesting and People are very happy to work hard if, if they're achieving things and, and, and it's all going well. If it all falls down behind them and they've got to start again, that's when, uh, when they lose heart. The other, the other thing is that, you know, you've got to, especially today with, with your supplementary feeding, you've got to uh, make sure that's done properly, otherwise you can waste a lot of money. Peter uh, Wagyu, just off the top of my head. Right, uh, Peter Wagyu is booming not just here in Australia but all over the world. I'm told American producers are getting keener and keener and bigger into uh, Wagyu. South America is getting into Wagyu, even South Africa into Wagyu. Is there a danger 
of oversupply here? And can the world cope with more and more wagyu? Well, Gary, I believe it's you know it's it's a little further up the ladder. It's if 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 we do become saturated, which I very much doubt, the world population or the world that can afford wagyu is increasing quite rapidly, and there's more and more demand for it. But the land mass that we're producing those cattle on is is uh, no more than it's ever been, except I think there's a lot of potential in Australia, but the rest of the world, where you've got big populations of people competing with grain for that land, the cattle keep getting pushed back and back into into more rugged and less productive areas. So, Kerry, I, I wouldn't... Uh, it could, certainly can become a commodity, like anything else that's overproduced, but it, it still should sell. Peter, uh, big cattle people have a history of getting into processing with, I think it's fair to say, mixed results. Did you ever entertain the idea of processing? Oh, I've, I've had a finger in it. I've, back in the 70s, we, I was involved with Beeflands. I don't know. You, you've been around long enough, Kerry. You can probably remember it. We yes, were lucky. Vaguely, we, yes. we survived. We got out of it with our shirts. <laughs> I think that's a fair enough comment. Uh, Peter, um, there's, a, there's a lot of pressure, especially from outside, on landholders these days surrounding the environment, water, land management, animal welfare. Do you feel that pressure? Has it increased over the years, and how do you handle it? Kerry, I, I, uh, animals, whether it's a horse or a dog or a cow, the, the better you look after it, the better it does for you. So I know we hear a lot of noise, but but you know the better you look after your animals, the better they do, and the better everyone does. So no, I'm I'm not concerned. I I mean I don't like red tape or green tape or all the regulations that are forced on us. But a lot of the times we're ahead of it anyway because we get better production if we do that. Market forces have a lot to do with how we look after our animals. Uh, the words uh, carbon credits, carbon grazing, uh, simple words, but with huge complexity behind them. How's your business uh, coping with this issue or problem, or do you see it as an opportunity? Kerry, I, I think there's so much noise around. Uh, I don't really know. I mean, it's been talked about for years now, so I've, I've uh, done a bit of research, and I've learnt the more carbon you can sequester into the land, which you do with growth, with, with good pastures, the better everything does. It's, it's not really the rainfall you get, it's the amount of carbon that you've been able to store in the ground. I, I don't really understand the, the carbon bank, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's another one of, these, one of these regulations that may be forced on us by people that really don't understand it. I'm not sure, Kerry, it's something that we treat with a bit of skepticism at the moment, but it's probably... Uh, I can understand why people are so frantic about it because without without the carbon cycle that makes the growth and the oxygen, there's, there's no living living things on Earth. So it's very important that we look after it. No one wants to pollute anything. No. Peter, uh, recently you were inducted into the Wagyu Hall of Fame. Terrific recognition from your industry peers. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was a great thrill, Kerry, Good, you know, for our team. For our team to be successful, I'm get the, the award pinned on me, but the, the, everybody else contributes a lot towards it, and it is a it is a great thrill. But I feel 
that I should be pinning those medals on the fellows that brought the cattle over here and, and, and did all the all the daring work in the early days. They're the ones that, that need all the recognition. I'm just I'm following along and taking advantage of what they've done, Peter, the way I feel. Speaking of your team, it's been an amazing journey of uh, with remarkable achievements. And alongside you all along, I'm told, is your wife, Jane. Jane, I'm told, has been and is an integral part of your business from day one. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just interestingly, Jane's great great grandfather was a Tarawumba before before our family was. He was he was here in the eighteen seventies and then moved on and they went out and uh, established themselves out of Alpha. It's interesting that, that her her family were here before before mine. Yeah, Jane is certainly you know, she's she's been a wonderful support. It's very important when you're on stations and live in the bush that it's a team. It's a team effort. It's very, uh, very hard to to make it all work on your own. And your boys are involved as well. They are. They are. Yeah, they're they're taken to it like ducks to water. Fred's overseeing a lot of country now, and uh, Sam is also. He's out. He's out in the Channel Country and uh, enjoying it immensely, especially with the flood he's getting at the moment. Time for a quick break, and this time we're hearing from our podcast partner, Kelly's Finance Group. Established since 1988, Kelly's Finance Group have the finance solutions when it comes to agribusiness lending, from property loans and livestock funding to machinery and vehicle finance. They are the experts in arranging finance on behalf of their clients that not only ensures market-leading interest rates, but more importantly, financing that is suited to your agricultural operations, not your lender's bottom line or their preferred security position. With access to an array of specialist and traditional finance providers, there's no job too big or too small for the Kelly's Finance Group team. Contact Kelly's Finance Group today for an independent and confidential discussion on how we can add value to your business moving forward. Welcome back. You're on The Grill with me, Kerry Lonigan, and Peter Hughes. I have to ask, as one of the most successful beef producers in Australia, what's, what's a decision or policy you would like to see come from a federal or state government to help the beef industry? Kerry, we really, we really need, you know, there's huge potential in, in northern Australia. Northern Australia, because of our smaller population, has been neglected for so long that I, we really have to put a lot of effort into in developing the north, in roads, infrastructure. I heard a very good suggestion the other day where there, there, there should be some sort of tax incentives for people that are 300 or 500 k's away from a, a major centre. And you don't have to have it just in the north. You can have it all over Australia. I think it would be just as tough along the bird, along the, the Birdsville track or... Or along the Nullarbor out there somewhere, than just as tough or tougher than it is in the north. But we really need to get developed in the north. There's so much potential up there, so much water. We've got all the problems, but it's like the chicken and the egg. You know, for a cotton industry to get going up there, you know, you need cotton gins, and we don't. It's not much use producing cotton at Cunnamulla and carting it all the way to Emerald to get processed and wrecking. Wrecking our good roads. Well, that that is a good road, but there's so many more roads of long distances that that badly need bitumening. If we could bitumen a road from, and I know they're onto it. We've had a, there's been a committee for years from Bullia right through to Laverton in Western Australia. It'd 
it'd be tremendously good for the West Australians. It'd, it'd bring them closer to our market and, uh, and take the trolls out of it, which they experience at the moment. The centre of Australia is a wonderful place to produce large animals. Uh, well said, Peter. Peter Hughes, one of the most admired and respected in Australia's beef industry. A, a wonderful pleasure to have you on the grill with Beef Central. Thank you very, very much, Peter. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, Gary. Thank you. And thank you for joining me today. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan, and this is the Weekly Grill brought to you by Alenco Animal Health and the Kelly's Finance Group. <laughs> <laughs>